everyone. Thanks for tuning in to read The End of Me with me in an audio format. And an idea I wanted to present to you, it's actually a great one recommended by Chase Mitchell of Upstarter Podcasts, is see if you want to read along with me. So if you have the book in hand, just open up to the start of the chapter. And as I read, you read. It can be kind of like a duo experience. If you don't already have the book, you can navigate to the Maya website, myyogaaudio.com, and there's links everywhere there to purchase my book. If you order it from Amazon, it should get to you within two days. It's also available at Barnes & Noble. So give it a try. See what the reading experience is like for you and see what the audio experience is like for you. And maybe you do both of them together. The End of Me, Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Hello, dear listeners. It's time for the next three chapters of my book, The End of Me. But before I dive into that, though, something that may enhance your experience of listening to the book is an interview I did recently with a local radio station here in Sacramento, 97.5 FM. On Saturday, October 24th, Wanda Abney, the host of the radio program Full Circle, reached out to me to come on the show and talk about my life journey and primarily the book. When we met up a few weeks ago, she interviewed me live on the air about the book, different parts of my life, and the launch of what you're listening to right now, Maya, My Yoga Audio. You can easily find the link to it in the at my.yoga.audio bio on Instagram, or simply look for Ms. Wanda's Full Circle Radio Podcast on Spotify and all major podcast networks. It was so much fun. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the book and about me, listen in. But for now, let's move on to the next three chapters. So chapter four, Dreamer. Beginning when I was very little, about age four, I began to have a reoccurring dream that was quite terrifying, involving a very violent death. It didn't make sense in my young mind, and when I tried to explain it to my grandmother, she would good-naturedly reassure me that I'd had a bad dream, and it was just that, a bad dream. But here's the thing. I also had not only vivid and reoccurring dreams, but I then would witness some of the things I dreamed about coming true in waking life. So you can imagine if I have one scary or not scary dream come to fruition, what about all the other ones? This particular one I'm about to tell you stuck with me and it felt so real. Every dream doesn't have real life significance, but if it keeps coming back, it forces you to look at it or your life in one way or another. The dream. It is night, and I'm walking down a cobblestone street. There are gas streetlights burning, but there's not much light, and I can't see more than a few feet in front of me or behind me. I'm scared. I think someone is following me, but when I turn around to look, I see shadows, nothing definite. It is damp, and it doesn't smell very good. I walk faster, and I can feel and hear my shoes tapping on the cobblestones. I didn't develop the language for this dream until I approached closer to 10 years old, but I had been having the same dream all along, over and over and over. 
as I walk faster, I sense that whatever is behind me is also moving in. I think I hear a bit of laughter or a snicker, which makes me feel more afraid. When I look down, I don't recognize myself. I have a long, dark skirt on and a tightly buttoned up blouse. I feel constricted, like I have layers of clothing on and probably a corset. My hair is long, but I can feel that it's tied up somehow. I can't see my reflection anywhere, but I know this to be true. I'm sweating, and I'm trying to get home. I'm going as fast as I can. Why isn't anyone else out on the street to help me? Why can I feel the danger, but I cannot see it? I turn around again, and I see just the tip of a black top hat and an eyebrow and an eye directly beneath it. A gentleman? No, but there is not enough time because he, it, whatever it is, is upon me. There is a roaring in my ears. Does it come from his lips or mine? The pain in my middle is excruciating. Through the blouse, through the corset, through my skin and organs, it sears and scoops and the air is thin. I can feel my body lowering to the ground and being dragged away while the rest of me flies up and floats over and away to a field and skies and stars. There is no more pain except for the memory of the cruelty and the last chance I did not have to escape it. When I was about 12, I saw a preview on television for an upcoming movie of the week about Jack the Ripper. I was frozen to the screen. I watched movies, I read books, I was and always have been a voracious reader, but I had somehow never come across the story of Jack the Ripper. I'm not even saying that this is definitively the case, but I do feel that there is a connection. I have no proof, only what I have experienced to back me up. When I told a university friend one night after having a few drinks about this dream I kept having, she asked me if I'd ever heard of past lives. I had not. Raised in a pretty repressive and religious Catholic family that was totally unheard of to me. In addition to my vivid dream life, I also, quote, saw things, especially around our very old house that we lived in from when I was about age two to age 10, and that my grandparents were renovating from the ground up. It was 200 years old, and I could write another book about those experiences alone. But I will say that my adoptive sister, Tisha, my grandparents' daughter, and my biological aunt, I called her sister, but really she was my aunt. Her and I both saw a ghostly family descending the front hallway stairs at our house at the same time once. And while I was relieved that someone else could finally see what I saw, she took it very hard. She was a teenager at the time, and it affected her quite badly. In combination with having seen a scary horror movie recently and then seeing figures moving about in our old home, she was sent to counseling with our parish priest to talk her down from her, quote, imagination. The past lives thing kind of stayed with me, and so from about age 20 onward, I started to read about it a little, watch some programs on the History Channel. I had similar limited conversations with like-minded souls that I met over the years. I wondered, over time, if my experiences with life and death and the possibility of past lives had anything to do with each other. 
And all the while, I lived my life, I raised my girls, I went to work, and eventually, I went back to school. In my mid-30s, I started painting and drawing, making artwork of all kinds, just for my own pleasure. Many of the things I was creating were a direct result of the dreams I was having or things that I saw that others didn't. I became so involved with art that I decided to enroll in school full-time and get an art degree. Capturing visions through the camera and working both on film and in digital form became my forte, and I went so far as to eventually complete my master's degree in photography. February 2008, Oakville, Ontario, Canada. In my second year of undergraduate work in art at the University of Toronto, I was enrolled in a design and digital media class. The program I was in required that all the offered art mediums be taken at least once. And then in your third year, you could narrow in on one or two mediums to use as your graduation thesis. Design had been a particularly challenging for me because the use of digital technology, creating something by hand physically was one thing, but creating and altering it on a computer was a subject that I struggled with for a long, long time. I was convinced I would fail the course because I would never get it. And then something interesting happened. We got an assignment where we had to tell a story in a format that was to be both a physical book and a digital representation. In both versions, we had to be able to, quote, turn the page. It's somewhat challenging to explain, but the template in InDesign and Illustrator we were to use involved learning how to place your imagery and text in such a way that it always unfolded as a book, and you would be graded according to how successful you were in achieving that. I'll say now that this course and this assignment by one of my favorite teachers, Jay Wilson, changed my life. Rather than panic about the assignment, I decided to get really excited about the story. Since I was a child, I have loved writing. I had initially wanted to be a writer and enrolled in journalism school only to realize that I didn't want to write about politicians and murderers. I liked more positive and truthful endeavors. Here was a chance. I decided to tell the story of my reoccurring dream in a comic book format. It would be exciting and dramatic. And if I could focus on the story and the images, maybe I wouldn't be so overwhelmed with my learning curve and the challenge of digital media. I spent so much time and energy on this project, I can hardly explain it. I became as singularly obsessed and focused on this project as I could possibly be. I wanted it to be as perfect as possible, as close to the experience for the reader as I could get. When the time finally came to present it to the class and the teacher, they were speechless. My heart sank. I had blown it. Then my teacher asked why I had decided to write a story about Jack the Ripper. He knew I was a mom and a wife and kind of suburban, so he was perplexed as to why this particular story had interested me enough to invest so much time and energy into talking about it. Up until this point, I had not explained to the class that it was actually based upon a reoccurring dream, and that a friend had one time casually suggested it might have something to do with past lives. So. I said all that to the class of 33 students and my teacher. And again, everyone was pretty silent. 
The following week was our last class of the year and involved the handing out of final grades. Not only did I receive the highest mark on that assignment, but I also received the award for most improved student. I finished with an overall A in the class, and I thought I might not even originally pass it. But that's not even the best part. Since I presented that project, I have stopped having that awful dream. Not one more time has it come back. After 30 years of carrying around that weight, it's just gone. Chapter 5, Asana. August, 1985, Sarnia, Ontario, Canada. When I was about 11 and had hit one of the roughest patches of waking life so far, I accidentally found yoga. Pimply, tall, and with seriously frizzy afro hair and braces, I was the epitome of preteen angst, insecurity, and misery. I was struggling in math and science at school and was the proverbial only kid of color in a class full of white Catholic kids. I had friends, don't get me wrong, but I was not excited about my life or my prospects, to say the least. I spent a lot of time with books, television, and candy to soothe my psyche. One weekend, while going to garage sales with my grandparents, who loved to look for antiques this way, I came across a deck of cards. For the 25 cents or whatever it was, I thought I would amuse myself with a game of solitaire or go fish with my younger cousins that I often babysat. When I got home, I was surprised to see that it was actually a deck of cards about yoga poses. A perky blonde lady was pictured on each card doing all kinds of what looked like to me, stretching. I sorted through them, picked the ones that I thought looked doable, and started doing it while watching TV. There was no mention that I can recall of vinyasa, ashtanga, hatha, or any of the commonly used Eastern philosophical yoga styles we hear about today. I don't even think there were any words at all on the cards, just the Christy Brinkley wannabe doing all sorts of weird-looking things. Somewhere in the deck, it must have said to breathe deeply because I remember doing that, and it got easier to get into and hold the pose. After that summer, though, I probably only returned to the cards once again in winter, but I do recall that when I did it, I felt better, I slept better, and my dreams were more peaceful. January 1999, Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I was pregnant with my second daughter, Jesha, and ecstatic to be pregnant again. Our daughter, Sandel, had been born two years earlier and was the little lovey of our lives. Full of personality and energy, she longed for a sibling to play with, and Richard and I felt it was a good time to try again. We were in a position to buy a home in the next year or so, and had taken a year of trying before we even got pregnant with Sandel, even though we had both still been in our 20s at the time. We were concerned it might take that time again to conceive, and so on New Year's Eve 1999, we decided to toast to another baby and started trying. We were hoping it would coincide with the 2001 new parental leave guideline in Canada, where you would have one year paid maternity leave a huge update to the current six-month paid leave. I was in love with the idea of being able to be home for a full year with my children and not have a major loss of income threaten the ability to grow our family. 
Two weeks later, we were pregnant. Ha, Jesha was now due to be born sometime in October, a good two months shy of the new parental leave window. We embraced our good fortune to have conceived so early and tried not to lament that I would only have six months to be home with them. Conscious that many countries do not even have any sort of maternal leave programs in place, we surged ahead with buying a home that we could hopefully close on before the new baby arrived. I was stressed, though, with a toddler and a baby on the way and a busy full-time job, and my doctor wanted to make sure that I got the care that I needed to have a smooth pregnancy and delivery. Well, we already know how that turned out. It was because of this, though, that yoga came back into my life. My doctor referred me to a prenatal yoga group that met at a church a few blocks away from the house once a week. She said it was important for me to get there, get back into my body and breathe and move for my baby and for me. My neighbors thought I was weird, but I kept going and I didn't care. It did feel good. We were new in town and it gave me a chance to meet some other women besides people that I worked with and managed. I was running the entire Western branch of a major home furniture, accessories, and design store at the time and had a lot of responsibilities. A lot of people worked, quote, for me, and upper management frowned upon and even warned me formally about being friends with people who reported to me. The prenatal yoga teacher was the hairiest woman I had ever met. She was short and muscular and literally vibrated with power. She was astounded to see me, as from my voice on the phone when we spoke about the class, she was convinced I would be blonde and petite and look like a cheerleader. (laughs) Ha ha. Regardless, she was a gift and brought into our classes a dose of spirituality and an awareness of breath and body that I'd never experienced before. For our final prenatal yoga session, she brought in Aboriginal drummers, in the U.S. we would say Native American, but they formed a circle and pounded their drums in rhythmic ways while we rested in Shavasana. I ended up crying and experienced what I now know were deep meditative visions of guardians, wise women, and other things which I cannot name. I found myself quite overcome with the experience, and I didn't know what to do with it. The teacher advised me to accept this gift of awareness to myself, my baby, and my family, and she invited me to continue the yoga with her after the baby was born. But I have to admit that at the time, I was not ready for the combined experiences of power, visioning, and confidence that yoga had presented to me. November, 2007, Oakville, Ontario, Canada. After returning to art school, I had a scare with my reproductive health. Pain and heavy bleeding revealed cysts on my right ovary. There was a two-week period of investigation where we didn't know if it was cancer or not. And honestly, I was okay with it. It was almost a joke now. I had died three times already. Was death really waiting for me this time? I wasn't truly fearless, though. Richard was concerned, and I had two little girls about to embark on their preteen years. When the cysts turned out to be benign, I did have laparoscopic surgery to remove them, as they were still causing me great pain and heavy bleeding. While in surgery, my obstetrician noted that I also had endometriosis. 
This is when the uterine tissue grows elsewhere in the body besides the uterus. It can and usually does cause pain, heavy bleeding, and difficulty conceiving. We had our two girls and didn't plan on more, so that didn't concern me so much. But I wanted to be without pain, and who loves a gushing period? I started looking at my overall health and lifestyle. Well, I was technically fine being in the top end of the tier for a healthy BMI for my height. I could realistically lose up to 30 pounds and still be healthy. Could a lower weight and a healthier lifestyle help with endometriosis? Some studies suggested this was so. I began running, watching more carefully what I ate. I dropped 10 pounds within a couple of months and felt great. I ran more, and then my knee went out. No running. Great. Now what? My doctor suggested yoga. She was encouraged by my zest for movement, but I couldn't do anything high impact until my knee healed. While in a department store one day, I found a DVD that supposedly connected yoga and dance. I had always wanted to take dance lessons, and yoga seemed to keep popping up in my life, so this sounded good to try in the privacy of my own home. This was another one of those moments where there was a big shift. I sweated so hard those first few home yoga sessions, I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. This was nothing like the prenatal yoga I had done, and nothing like the card game of yoga either. I was pumped. I was excited. I couldn't wait to get home each night to do my yoga DVD. I did this for a year and a half at home and gradually worked running back in too once my knee healed, alternating vinyasa and hatha style yoga and running. Eventually, I bought a couple more DVDs with Pilates and other types of yoga. I was hooked. When I practiced and did the closing meditations, I saw and felt things that made me think, I could accomplish anything. My dreams were powerful. My artwork was taking off. I felt great. I looked great. I got a modeling contract and appeared in a few catalogs and ads for women's clothing and fashion. At 35, I told one of my CrossFit friends about my new love of yoga. And she said I had to come to one of her favorite classes in a heated studio for power yoga. I immediately said no. To me, this was something so private and powerful. There's no way I was going to challenge myself in a way that would have me comparing myself to other people, to risk looking foolish, or to try something new and end up falling on my face. As usual, I was wrong about all of those assumptions. Sonia took me to her favorite Sunday night class, and yes, it was hot. But I run cold anyway, so I didn't mind the heat. Let me tell you the BAM effect that this class had on me. I could do it. It was fucking hard. But I could holy fucking cow do it. I sweated more than I ever have in my life. But I did it. Shavasana was like heaven. The music was perfect. The teacher was a kindly coach who pumped you up when you needed it, advised you to lie down if you were looking woozy. Sonia and I high-fived each other at the end of the class, and I barely slept that night. Power yoga junkie, here we come. Three years later, I was still doing hot yoga, but at different studios around town and thoroughly enjoying our community, the feeling of wellness in my body and mind, 
and opening up more and more to the visions, meditations, dreams, and auras that I began witnessing more often. The teachers that I love and the owners of the studio I mainly practiced at started asking me when I was going to do teacher training. I just love yoga. I couldn't possibly teach it. Are you crazy? Once again, I was wrong in my assumption. The moment happened when I was in a particularly powerful class led by one of the studio owners, Maureen. Yoga, by its very nature, always involves some sort of self-inquiry. This class was no exception. With sudden, overwhelming clarity, I knew, I absolutely knew that I had to do yoga teacher training. I had to be able to give back this gift that I'd been given to someone else. Maybe lots of someone else's. There was no question, no doubt anymore that I had something to offer. But how? I was working at a health and wellness center. I was just finishing up my master's in art. I had student loans, a mortgage, two kids. Uh, How was this even sane on any level? I dissolved into tears on my yoga mat. Luckily, the room was hot and people are sweaty and we were face down. After class, though, I still couldn't stop my tears and I approached the studio owner about different options to pay for my training. I'd been going there so long, they offered me an amazing monthly payment plan that was a smaller amount per month over a longer period of time. Still manageable, still doable, still for me. I went home and Richard knew immediately. He sighed and went along with it and so began my six-month teacher training program that again changed the course of my life. When I graduated from teacher training, I still had to do 30 hours of volunteer classes. I was scared, but these classes helped convince me I'd done the right thing and that I had something valuable to give back. I taught a few private classes, worked in some corporate fitness centers, and subbed at the studio I trained at. I graduated in May of 2012 from the San Francisco Art Institute with my master's degree in art and photography, and in June of 2013 with my 200-hour yoga teaching certification from Aigida in Oakville, Ontario. In June of 2012, after I graduated, Richard asked me, so what do you want to do now with your master's degree? I wanted to teach, and I wanted to practice, and suddenly I wanted to move to California. Living in San Francisco part-time while I completed graduate school had shifted my perspective quite a bit on where I wanted to live and what I wanted to do. We decided we would make a plan to move to California. Starting first with checking in on a long-standing application for a green card that we had initiated over 10 years earlier, we got updates about every six months, and it never seemed to be going anywhere. We had built our lives in Canada, and to be honest, had kind of forgotten about it until now. Funny how that works, isn't it? A month after we had returned from my graduation ceremony in San Francisco and talked about trying to move there, We got a call. Our green card interview was in two weeks. We started looking for jobs and got our house ready to put on the market. After living there for 13 years, that was no small task, but we were motivated. The first job I applied for, I got a call back about the next day. 
I had applied for an administrative position at a school, but it turns out they were looking for an art teacher. I could not believe my luck. It was summer. Classes started in September. How soon could I be there? They asked me. My head was spinning. I contacted friends in California for help with recommendations of where to live and how to get started. It was all happening so quickly. My friend and fellow SFAI alumni, Shirley, helped me find a house to rent right on the street in her neighborhood in a great, safe, family-friendly area. I gave notice at my job, bought my plane ticket, got my documents in order, and flew to California in October of 2013. I started my art teaching job the week after I arrived, and the week after that, I also landed a job teaching yoga at the local fitness center. I had two major art shows happening and a publication of my work in a major arts journal. It seemed as if all the cards were finally falling into place. Chapter 6, California. October 2013, Sacramento, California. When I arrived in California, it was like a dream come true for a long time. I was fortunate to have landed an art teaching job so quickly, even though it was only part-time. My yoga teaching job, too, was very part-time, just one class a week. But I looked at this time as a valuable opportunity to work on my art, work on my writing, and spend time with my now teenage daughters as they navigated a new school, a new city, and a new home. Teaching art two days a week sounds pretty awesome, and in many ways it was. However, the huge challenge of this position was the circumstances of many of the children I taught. Not all, but many of the students lived in poverty, in foster care, or with more distant relatives. And I came to find out some were actually homeless and spent their evenings sleeping on city buses until they were kicked off. I could not assign homework because most children didn't have school supplies at home, and shared rooms with multiple siblings and family members, making realistic completion of homework impossible. In the six-month period that I taught there, I like to think that I made some sort of difference. There were kids with some real talent and skill, and we had an end-of-year talent show where all of them had the chance to display their artwork, sing, or express their creativity in myriad ways. I found myself in tears on many occasions as I witnessed their incredible gifts, drive, and possibilities. Sadly, a few students were expelled or even suspended during that time due to fighting amongst each other or even, on one occasion, attacking a teacher. The school is located in a historically black and impoverished neighborhood, and while the high school was making waves of change for university and college acceptance rates, and students were really making their way into the world, the middle school adjacent to it where I taught at the time was still struggling to make their mark. I started in the fall of 2013 part-time with the promise that my position would turn full-time in January of 2014. The funding for this, however, was not approved, and my schedule stayed the same. I was teaching more yoga classes by this time, but my employment situation overall needed to change. And if I'm really honest, I also have to say that teaching kids in this age group was too big of a job for me. I have many friends who are teachers, and this job 
takes a special sort of dedication and level of engagement. I did not have interest initially in teaching anyone other than college or university students. Younger than that age is such a fragile time. And for the kids I was teaching, they had even more to carry in their emotional backpacks than the average kids. And it was really tough for all of us to handle. While I was never physically attacked, kids certainly can say and do cruel things that are out of line, but I was adult enough to know not to respond in kind. Often, when the kids were especially unruly, we would start class with a meditation. Sometimes it worked perfectly, and all 30-plus students would sit, close their eyes, put their hands together, and breathe deeply. At other times, five or six kids would continue to ignore me and talk, but most of the class would do it. The level of pain, anger, and ongoing trauma that they were dealing with was palpable. As a teacher with a black heritage, I knew the school was happy to have me there as an example to the kids. They told me so. As the only teacher of color on staff, I spoke about my children often. One of my girls was the same age and grade that most of them were. Being able to show them that someone who looked like them could grow up and teach and become a self-sustaining adult wasn't a small thing. And I was aware of this each and every time I came onto campus. The full-time teachers and principal who were there when I was were and still are doing an amazing job. And I wish every single one of them the best. When I left, they completely understood that I needed full-time work. And I made a special point of telling the kids that they hadn't driven me away. Previous art teachers apparently had told them that their behavior was the cause of a teaching departure, and it broke their already wounded hearts. During my time there, I was excited to introduce them to work by nationally and internationally renowned Black artists who most of them had never heard of. We did art assignments like silhouettes based on the work of Carol Walker, an abstract painting and collage after Jean-Michel Basquiat. I eventually found full-time work with a small company where I stayed for just over three years, managing online accounts for art and lighting. I left there too, after it was bought by a private equity company and everything changed. I had been unhappy for a while, and the purchase of the company reinforced the decision I knew I needed to make. I was teaching a lot of yoga, in fact, almost daily and on weekends too. My impossible dream then was teach yoga and write full-time. But how? 